Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. And look, something, well, it's shifted. Not exactly how sure and how much that actually has been the case, but we've ridden the political roller coaster enough to know that no one knows for sure what's going to happen in the November midterms. But remember that big red Republican wave that so many political soothsayers were predicting? Well, if last night's primary results were any indication, we might have some clues that, look, that may not hit so hard after all. Here's the first clue. Have we been watching a little uh, news coverage on the on the uh, edge of our seat. I, 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 I honestly can't believe it. I cannot believe it. Well, that's Democrat Pat Ryan. He apparently surprised himself that he won a special election against a Republican in a New York swing district that many expected to swing toward the GOP. After all, Biden only won the district by, what, a point and a half in 2020? And we all know that when it comes to midterm elections, if passed his prologue, the party in the Oval Office doesn't really get the benefit of the spoils. And that leads us to number two, clue number two. I'll let Pat Ryan explain that one, too. And I think these, the, these Supreme Court decisions, especially on both guns and on, on, uh, on Roe or Dobbs, I should say, struck a real nerve that's much deeper uh, than some of the other issues people are experiencing and, and kind of hit guardrails of democracy. We saw that in other places as well, right? I mean, this was the fourth special election post-Dobbs or post the overturning of Roe v. Wade. It's also the fourth in a row where Democrats have actually improved their margins over Biden's numbers back in 2020. Now, let's be honest, and we can keep in mind, a special election on its own is not going to be entirely instructive or tell us exactly everything about the political environment. But maybe grouped together, you might begin to tell a bit of a story. Now, we don't know actually how this story is going to end, but there seems to be a trend. Look at clue number three. The president still can't be happy, of course, with his low approval ratings are almost going down the way he's coming out of that particular aircraft. But Joe Biden's got some of his mojo back, as they say, winning a string of legislative victories like the CHIPS bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, the, the burn pits bill and a major gun safety bill. Inflation, it is easing and gas prices, they are coming down. The world's most wanted terrorists has now been killed. And that brings us to today's major announcement from the president of the United States. that the federal government is going to forgive $10,000 in student loans for most borrowers, upwards of 20 for others. And that means some relief for some 43 million people. All this means people can start, finally crawl out from under that mountain of debt to get on top of their rent and their utilities to finally think about buying a home or starting a family or starting a business. And by the way, when this happens, the whole economy is better off. Well, that might be the case, but look, not everyone's been cheering. I mean, some on the left say, great, 
but it doesn't go nearly far enough, not what they wanted in terms of an overall forgiveness, then you got the right that this is President Biden trying to buy votes. Then there are complaints like those that were laid out by the Washington Post editorial board, which calls this a, quote, regressive, expensive mistake, unquote. They argue that this could potentially actually drive up inflation, and that is, it just shifts the debt to the larger tax base. The question now is, what does all of this mean for Biden, who is adding this to his list of accomplishments, knowing that we are less than three months away, what, 11 weeks now from the midterm elections, less than 11 weeks to go into Election Day? The primaries certainly are, are winding down, but we know when it comes to politics and certainly when it comes to congressional politics, the fight among both parties is far from over. Joining me now, CNN political commentators Maria Cardona, a Democratic strategist, David Swerdlick, a senior staff editor at The New York Times, and Scott Jennings, former special assistant to former President George W. Bush. I'm so glad that you were all here. And, you know, I have to ask, when you think about this, are you, why are you already smirking? What's happening right now? <laughs> Hold on. I didn't have to put, just tell me why you're smirking. Go ahead. What is your reaction? Oh, to the student loan debacle? Oh, is, the it, disgrace oh, is, it, is it a debacle? The president there you go. The, I mean, well, where do I start? It's inflationary. It's illegal. It's immoral. It's irrational. It's idiotic. It's inequitable. And those are just the things that start with a letter I. I mean, I could go on to other letters in the alphabet. I think that what he did today is a direct reaction to the fact that young Democrats in all the polling we've seen hate Joe Biden. They're done with Joe Biden. And he's sending them all a $10,000 check in an effort to buy their support. Even Nancy Pelosi, who I'm not often aligned with, as you know, stated on the record unequivocally that this is illegal. The President of the United States does not have the authority to do this. And the final question is, there is no world where you would consider this to be fair. What makes this debt more righteous than the small plumber who took out a loan to buy a new van or the person who got a mortgage or the person who got a loan to buy a car so they could drive themselves back and forth to work? Or what makes it fair to the person who paid off their debts to the parent who just wrote the last check for their son or daughter to go to college. There's no world in which this isn't a cynical political ploy by an elderly president trying to buy the votes of the youngest people of his party. I want to tell you, Maria Cardona literally moved her phone away from her just now as you were talking. I hope talking. she was recording I don't it. know if you were saying, were you going to throw it? Were you like, let me just hold on something, hold on a second? You, what, what is your reaction, You know, Maria? shocker that a Republican would be against something that a Democratic president is doing that is wildly popular at a time when Democrats are gaining momentum going into the midterm election, showing that it is yet another promise kept by this president. And by the way, it was a promise that he made to voters, to constituents, not just young people, but yes, young people during the campaign. He didn't just come up with this. And by the way, it's rich that Republicans are talking about fairness when they have passed billions and billions of dollars in corporate tax cuts, in corporate socialism, and now they're talking about fairness? Give me an effing break. Well, I got to say, I mean, I want to hear from you, too, because they think about that. And, you know, good good censorship. I like that. Because he, he had the letter I, you had the letter cable, F. Yeah. It was cable. You know, I don't know. I don't know if we're there yet. We're not there yet. But on the point... Yeah. I mean, we I do have we do have other <laughs> forgiveness programs, right? I mean, sure. it's not it's not yeah. this, it's not totally novel in the idea of this debt, as Scott mentioned, being so righteous. There are certainly generations who are going to benefit from some laws that the last will not, and the future did not, right. and the past one. So, why? What, where do you come out on this? So, I agree with one point that you made, Maria, and one point that you made, Scott. 
I, That's uh, very uh, diplomatic. Right, yeah, that was very diplomatic. Look, you're right. This kind of debt is not more righteous than a small business loan. One difference, though, small business loan, other kinds of personal debt, you can discharge in bankruptcy. Right now, you can't discharge mm-hmm. this in bankruptcy. Treasury Secretary Summers the other day proposed doing that instead of this, but it still stands there right now. This is debt that people are really dragging along. The other thing about this is that when you're talking about policy, Scott, you've got to remember that every, just as Laura said, every sort of giveaway, if you will, is a giveaway to somebody. President Trump gave money to farmers who voted for him to do a trade war with China, and then he subsidized the trade war by, by subsidizing their products that China was putting tariffs on. President Trump did the 2017 tax cut. Mm-hmm. And that was a sort of a giveaway in a lot of people's eyes to wealthier who, Americans. Who, who's well, hold on, do you but, think it is? Well, before so, I, well, hold on, before I, mean, it's a, it's before a I get there. No, excuse me. Before I get there, though, I want to put out this. Yeah. and This will infuse the conversation because we're talking about equity and fairness. We know part of the Biden right. administration has been about intergenerational That's wealth right. and fairness, particularly in communities of color. And I want to take a pause. And we, we mentioned the student debt plan. But I want to look at who it will actually impact. I mean, look at the screen there. Biden says it's going to help ease the pain in communities who most are most hampered by debt, racial minorities. But the NAACP, maybe to a different point, says that it's not enough. And they say, quote, canceling just $10,000 of debt is like pouring a bucket of ice water on a forest fire. It hardly achieves anything, only making a mere dent in the problem. And we know the problem is vast. You've got federal student loan debt now standing in the U.S. at around one6 trillion dollars. There was a model from the Urban Institute that showed that 62% of the canceled student loan dollars would go to white borrowers versus the 25% that would go toward black borrowers, 8% for Hispanic borrowers. Now look a little closer and it's black women, I'm pointing at myself, who hold the majority of student debt. Shouldn't come as a surprise considering messages, well, like this. A college man got me a college man. Ma, this letter just means I got accepted. It doesn't mean we can't afford it. Nonsense. It means you're smart, you work for it, and you deserve it. Honey, it's your chance. And we're gonna get you on that bus somehow. You were the first in this family to uh, get into college. I'm so proud of you. I can't go, can I? I just can't afford to send you. I remember ads like that when they were playing and they would play all the time and be really fermented in the minds of so many people. And yet we see Americans, people of color, who must spend way more for a chance at the American dream. The Brookings analysis showed that black college graduates owe $7,400 more just on average than their white peers. And take into account differences in interest accrual and graduate school borrowing, well, then you're talking about black graduates ending up holding nearly $53,000 in student loan debt after graduating. It's almost twice as much as their white counterparts. Now, I bring that up in the panel and have that moment because you're talking about fairness, right? And we know that at times we compartmentalize when equity ought to be doled out. But equality is not like pie, right? You don't get less because I get a piece. Right. But it's a part of the conversation. How, do you, how does that change? Does it change or influence you at all? Oh, I, I, I think some of these things are extremely fair. And I think every time you peel a layer back, like you just did on the difference between white borrowers and African-American borrowers, you see how little thought was put into this. But the part of Joe Biden's political base that he is most worried about are these young, white, privileged, liberal, gender studies majors who are so unhappy with him None of them want to support this guy for president again. 
That's who he's writing a check to today. It is simply trying to buy off the people who he can't get today in the current polling and taking for granted everybody you just mentioned. And I can't believe that I'm the only person at this table who, is more bother- who isn't more bothered by the fact that this is totally illegal. There is no authority for the president to do this at all. And Chuck Schumer, the Senate Democrat leader today, said, with the flick of a pen, Joe Biden has dot, dot. Why even have a Congress? Where is the co-equal or more important branch of government in all this? I am Because stunned. for so long, Congress, Republicans specifically, has said no on any kind of policy that would give any kind of equity to the American people, especially those who need it the most. And I think it's insulting, Scott, that you say that this policy will not help black students, will not help Latino students. I didn't. I know she a said bunch. it. I didn't say it. She laid it out. I didn't say it. I read you, you the facts. You just give a very reports. compelling report. I read you the reports. Yeah. What you happened. said that this would only help white students that are studying gender studies, whatever that means. I don't know. It sounds insulting. Because it is people, insulting. People I'm insulted. In my, people in my, <laughs> my gender studies. People in I, my I, community. I, people <laughs> in Laura's community. People in many communities, including white people, will benefit from this. That's why it is equitable. Laura, is it the be all and end all? No, but it will be a a step in the right direction. We need to reform the way that we send our students to school. When my parents brought us to this country, it was because we had this, this dream of being able to do anything you wanted if you studied hard, if you played by the rules. And my parents were able to send us to college because of the opportunities in this country. Ooh, yeah. I want everyone to have that. And apparently Republicans don't. Well, go ahead. I was just going to quickly say, I didn't get to say where I agreed with Maria, which was that, yes, this was not a surprise. Biden and other Democrats campaigned on this. There will be court challenges, and it may go down in court in the same way that some of the things that President Obama executive ordered, like like the DAPA program, did go down at the Supreme Court level. So I I, I don't think you're wrong there. But this was something that Democrats campaigned on. It was not a secret. And Biden is bringing it out at the time when he's on a little bit of a hot And it is a promise kept. I, 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 I agree about this about that he campaigned on it. A, that's not, a, you know, I guess I could campaign on all sorts of illegal things and that doesn't make it right. But B, if he thought this was legal and proper, he would have done it on day one. Instead, we're doing it 11 weeks before an election. There's nothing illegal or proper or good policy about it. It's pure politics. Well, we're going to come back to this point, but just suffice to say, one of the reasons they have said they did this impact is because of the impact that COVID-19 has had on people's ability to pay, hence the delay of the actual payments and beyond. That might explain part of the reason why. I hear your point. We'll come back to Maria Cardona. Thank you, David and Scott. Stick around. I want to hear from all of you. And there's major news coming in tonight in the aftermath of the tragic Uvalde school massacre. You know, minutes ago, while we were having these conversations, the school board voted to fire school police chief Pete Arredondo. We'll talk to the state lawmaker who represents Uvalde and believes the blame should not stop with Arredondo. That's next. This just in, the Uvalde school board voting tonight to fire the embattled Uvalde police chief, Pete Arredondo. This comes exactly, can you believe it, three months after 19 children and two teachers were murdered at Robb Elementary. The unanimous decision came after a heated school board meeting where members of the community, well, they demanded accountability. Our babies are dead. Our teachers are dead. Our parents are dead. The least y'all can do is show us the respect to do this in the public. 
You don't care squat about this family. If it was one of your children, heads would be rolling right now. But because of SNAP, you don't care. I have messages for PR and other other law enforcement that were there that day. Turn in your patch and step down. You don't deserve to wear one. Arredondo, he may not be going quietly, however. His lawyer released a 17-page statement just minutes before the meeting explaining why Arredondo chose not to attend and calling the vote a, quote, public lynching. I want to bring in Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, who was there tonight. He represents Uvalde. You know, you and I have been talking, um, Senator, for some time, and this has been a tragedy that continues to unfold. You have been a part of this from the inception. Can you tell us what it was like at tonight's meeting. What what was the atmosphere in that room? We are watching it. I can't imagine what that must have been like. So Laura, you got a lot of broken families out here. I mean, they have been waiting for some accountability, any accountability for now going on three months. And this is certainly a step in the right direction, but we have a long road to go on this issue. Uh, Arredondo was simply one small aspect of what needed to happen here. What occurred on May 24th should never have happened in Texas. You have to go straight to the top as to why it did. People are very upset, rightly so. Now, you, you mentioned the idea as one of. Are you suggesting that he either was scapegoated or is simply not the only one who needs to be held to account? Laura, we had a House committee report which very directly stated that you had many other law enforcement agencies with more firepower, more personnel, more ammunition, that should have gone in. And indeed, there were protocols within law enforcement handbooks that suggested that if he wasn't going to take accountability or step into the position of incident commander, then others should. Mm. Clearly, there was nobody in command. That was what the Rob report indicated. We needed to do a heck of a lot better than we've done for the community of Uvalde. Sadly, it took 90 days for a school board to act. But here we have a governor who the Department of Public Safety direct reports to, who's failed to ask accountability from one of his own agency heads. He didn't need a committee to do anything. He didn't need a board to decide. Greg Abbott should have asked for accountability since day one, and that still has not happened in Texas. Well, speaking of accountability or people who don't believe that they should be held to account, I want to read for you a part of what Chief Arredondo's statement, released to his attorney, actually said. And he said, and I quote, Chief Arredondo was brave, led other officers in saving lives, and took all reasonable actions to prevent further injuries or loss of life, as the active shooter protocol demands. Given what you've said, I mean, there's equal part sort of the the audacity that people would think about and that notion of it. Um, What is your response to that statement? There was bravery in in that building. It wasn't from the police. It was from the children in those classrooms. They were the brave ones. The fact is law enforcement, and I know I can't play Monday morning quarterback, but the fact is law enforcement walked around that hallway like it was a Sunday afternoon. And they walked around it because they knew they were scared. They were scared of the awesome power of that of that machine gun that that young man had. But at the end of the day, they violated each, every protocol that said that they needed to go in. To place it on the cafeteria school, part, uh, school cop, all the responsibility is wrong. He is absolutely responsible, but so is every other cop that was in that hallway, including a Texas Ranger that was on the phone with 
higher ups at DPS, and they did nothing. They told him they, they didn't say, hey, go get 12 of our guys and go in. That didn't happen. So Steve McCraw has to account for why his officers failed to act on May 24th. You know, I've often wondered why we all really know with some fluency the name Pete Arredondo, but some of the names you've mentioned as well. I wonder if we'll hear more information about that. I just can't believe that it's been three months every day. I'm sure for the families, it's felt like a thousand. Thank you, State Senator Roland Gutierrez. I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much, Lord. Up ahead, this Democrat you're about to see, he could be the first member of what's called Generation Z to serve in Congress. And he calls Gen Z the mass shooting generation. 25 years old and beat out seasoned former member of Congress. How? He'll tell us next. So Congress could get its first Gen Z member this fall. 25-year-old Maxwell Frost won the Democratic nomination in Florida's 10th congressional district. That's the one that Val Demings is leaving behind as she runs for Senate. So how did he best a, well, a crowded field of experienced candidates? It could be Maybe his story. An activist working with and with working class roots, he drove Uber for extra cash, or, or maybe that he was backed by powerhouses like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. But why don't we just ask the man himself and not talk around him? Maxwell Frost joins me now. Welcome to the show. How are you? Doing well. Feeling blessed. Thank you so much for having me tonight. Well, congratulations on your win. I have to say, and I, I hate to almost couch it in the language of the first Generation Z person because it seems very dismissive of, what, of who you are and what you bring to the table. But it, can't, it must be said, many are looking at this and saying, he's very young, he'll be a, he might be a member of Congress. How do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's a great um, example and symbol um, to where we need to go in our country. Uh, look, we need a Congress that looks like the country. And what that means is, yes, race, yes, ideology, um, but also the experiences someone's had and also their age. We know that young folks in this country are going through new challenges, and I think it's important to have that perspective at the table. But let's be clear and, and, and honest about it, too. You know, I didn't run to be the first Gen Z member of Congress. I so happened to be, you know, 25 years old but I'm running because of the issues going on in my district because I see what folks are going through here in Orlando and all across Florida and I'm really dedicated to fighting for for true justice for people and ensuring that people have the resources they need to live their best lives um, to not worry about where the, whether or not they're going to have a next meal to not worry about picking between rent and medicine. I mean, these are real issues people are going through right now. And, you know, my age gives me a, a different perspective, but we need different perspectives in Congress so it can really work for everybody. You know, it's always interesting. People uh, want to appeal to younger voters, but suddenly they think you might be too young to actually lead. It's always a funny thing the way they, they do these notions. But I want to ask you about one of the things you've talked about in terms of what's been very important to you. And I can't help but notice in a place like Florida, where you had the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting in Parkland. Um, unfortunately, mass shootings in this country have become far too common. We just talked about what happened in Uvalde at Robb Elementary School. You've spoken about the generation that you represent in part as the mass shooting generation. Do you intend to act in Congress to do more than what has already been done? 
110%. I intend to be a vocal champion on ending gun violence in Congress, taking a holistic approach to ending the violence and building a world where we don't have to fear going to church, going to the store, walking in our own communities. And, you know, for folks who don't know, just a few months ago, the leading cause of death for children went from automobile accidents to gun violence. Our children are literally on the front lines of this issue, and we need bold champions to fight. You know, I want everyone to think about how serious of a problem mass shootings are and the carnage that it wreaks havoc on our communities, and know that that's 1% of gun violence. This issue is so broad, it is ruining so many lives, taking the lives of so many Americans, um, and we need folks who are gonna be bold leaders on it, and I intend to join uh, uh, the group of great uh, advocates in Congress to work to build a world that we deserve to live in, and that's one that we're safe in. You know, a lot of what you have talked about tonight, and I know what came on your campaign trail was very appealing to the voters, hence, of course, your victory, was that your experience resonates with them, who you are as a person, the experiences you've had to date, your work, the idea that you actually you haven't finished college, I understand. But I am wondering about what you view as to what today's issue in particular that has been so impactful for so many people. There's been a lot of reactions even here today on the show. What do you make of President Biden's decision to cancel certain amounts of student loan debt? It's a very important issue for people who are coming out of college, who are under $100,000 a year, it is a huge saddling burden. Yeah, I think it's a great step in the right direction and the direction that we need to move in. And pe people need to realize when we think about the word college, we only think about young people. And this does impact uh, many, many young people all across the country. But there's also older folks who have gone to college as well who have debt themselves. This isn't just an issue that impacts one small group of people. It impacts many Americans and really all Americans. And what this campaign has been about is about a campaign of love, that because I love you, I want you to have health care. I don't want you to have any debt. I want you to have the resources you need. And when we move to that type of politics, we can look at folks who have debt and say, yes, you that that should be forgiven so you don't have that chain on you and you can live your life. And so I think it's a great step in the right direction. Hopefully it's a call to action to people across the country to join this movement to work to end student debt for, for all people and cancel all student debt. Um, but I believe this is something that shows that the president is looking at the issue very seriously. This is going to help tons of people. Um, and we know that folks of color, black and brown people, are disproportionately impacted by the student debt crisis. And so this is also a racial justice issue. It's an economic issue, and it's just the right thing to do. Thank you so much. I, I hope that people no longer lead with your age, but instead what you have to say in the substance. Maxwell Frost, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And if folks want to support, they can go to frostforcongress.com. Thank you. Look, each day we're learning something new about the many classified documents retrieved from Mar-a-Lago. And frankly, tonight's no exception to that. A deadline is looming for Donald Trump and his legal team. We're going to tell you about it next. New tonight, Donald Trump's refusal to turn over records to the National Archives stretches back well, even further than we thought from before, back to when apparently he was still in the White House. Tina has confirmed a report from the Washington Post. An email from the National Archives says about two dozen boxes of presidential records stored in then-President Trump's White House residence were not returned in the final days of his term. 
even after archive officials say they were told by the former Trump White House counsel, Pat Cipollone, that they should, his words, be given back. David Swerdlick and Scott Jennings are here and with me right now, as long as well with my friend here, Ellie Honig, senior legal analyst for CNN. So nice to see all of you. And you here in Washington, D.C., look at you. I'll go anywhere you. for you. Oh, see, <laughs> I got to wear my boots for this one. I got to ask you, though, Ellie, um, what do you make of this? Well, look, the timeline just keeps getting longer and longer here, and and it's definitely not good for Trump. It also raises some questions, frankly, about DOJ and what took so long. I mean, we now know this went back to the time Donald Trump was in office. We know from the letter that came out from archives the other day, they were negotiating calmly, patiently, maybe too patiently with Trump's people throughout 2021. Then they got some boxes, that first 15 documents, but not all. Then finally, DOJ gets involved. They try the subpoena. Finally, they get to the search warrant. So big takeaway The search warrant was a last resort. DOJ tried everything, and arguably, DOJ was even too precipitous, uh, uh, you know, allowed this to go on for too long, and were too solicitous, I should say, and too passive in the way they handled it. I think it's, I mean, it's not not your ex-boyfriend's sweater he wants back, right? I mean, you're talking about classified documents, and you're talking about, and by the way, he's not getting it back. I'm a married woman now. But, you know, you think about all these things, it's, these are classified documents, you're, talk, you're talking about that when he was the president of the United States and they were acting, asking for it back, it was still negotiable. But you know, this brings me to your point you've raised. We talked about this yesterday because, Scott, you, you look at this and think about how far back this goes. You don't think this means that Biden knew nothing. You well, think it means that Biden might know more than he's letting on? Well, we don't know because we don't exactly know. We keep calling them classified documents. But then at the same time, the search warrant, the laws that they say he may have broken don't require the material to be classified. We don't know. Then there was a report that it was nuclear secrets. That seems mm. to have faded away now. No one seems to be owning up to that. So we don't actually know. And I think Ellie brought up a good point. What took so long? If this were, and this is a question I think many people should be asking, if this were the highest level of secrets that put the United States national security in grave danger, which is the words that people are using. Why did they wait so long? I think you raise an excellent question. But the, the reality, we can't answer it because we have no idea, which is why I think the DOJ ultimately here is going to have to succumb to some kind of transparency to the intelligence. Now, Biden, first of all, Biden did say, I want to put, he, did, he was asked today about whether he had any advance notice of the search today. Hear this part. Mr. President, how much advance notice did you have of the FBI's plan to search Mar-a-Lago? I didn't have any advance notice. None. Zero. Not one single bit. Okay, quick question on that. If, if that's true, you're saying that one of the most sensitive documents in the federal government is on the loose, out in the open in Mar-a-Lago, and the President of the United States doesn't know about it or hasn't been told about it? Either that cannot possibly be true or the document isn't as grave mm. as people have said. He's put himself on the hook with that statement, no question. You, you, you're wait, right. Wait, why? Why? Well, because he's right there on national TV today. About the search, though. Like saying he knew nothing. If it later comes out that he was in a meeting with the attorney general, then he'll have to backpedal it and, and explain that. You're right that we don't know what we don't know. You're right that we in the media and the public should be patient. But it's possible that the delay was to make it not appear political, just as much as it's possible that the delay could have been to make it appear political. Just one more quick point. Ellie former federal prosecutor, you're totally right. Legally, this doesn't redound well for the president right now. Politically, though, the messier it gets, I think, the more it gets strung out. Special masters, affidavits, magistrates, what happened here, what happened? The president can keep churning and churning politically on it instead of it being boiled down to what this is at a certain fundamental level, 
These are documents, to your point, Laura, that belong to the people of the United States. The National Archives asked for them back, and they didn't get them back. And for, now here we are. For a long time. But to that point, you mentioned the affidavit. The affidavit deadline. I mean, let's unpack this a little bit, Ellie, because I, I want people to have their expectations managed. <laughs> Tomorrow is Thursday. But it doesn't mean we're actually going to see the affidavit in a redacted form or otherwise tomorrow. Prepare yourselves for not much tomorrow (laughs) and possibly nothing tomorrow, because let's be clear on what tomorrow is. That is the deadline by which DOJ has to submit something privately to the judge saying, "Okay, judge, here is the part of the affidavit we can live with you unsealing. Now, the judge may see that it's possible, get it midday and say, I agree. Here you go, public. We may have it at 3 p.m. Or the judge may say, I need to sit on this. I need to look at it for a day or two or a week. Or the judge may disagree. The affidavit, you know, I can put myself back in the shoes that we were once in at DOJ. I mean, these affidavits, the, the notion of them coming out during the investigation goes against everything we were taught. It is unheard of. And so I guarantee you prosecutors have spent the last week saying, okay, how do we look like we're telling something while telling as little as humanly possible. You cannot out your investigation. You cannot out part of your investigation because if you redact out some of your investigation but not some other part, it's going to look like you were selected. But you have both Democrats and Republicans now who yeah. are, I mean, Congressman Ro Khanna came out to talk about wanting that transparency at the least part because of the fact that it's a former president. I mean, there are, I mean you have to assume that even in writing it, they probably thought, if this gets out, then what? Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea of transparency is yeah. not going to be the most effective way prosecutorially, yeah. but politically. Well, I, I mean, the fact that you have serious Democrats and Republicans in the Congress wanting it, that you have news outlets wanting it. I mean, there's obviously a public interest in this, not just because he was a former president, but he is quite likely going to be a presidential candidate. I, I mean, yeah. you guys tell me, I feel like Merrick Garland is so in over his head on this. They failed to predict what the outcome of this was going to be. And then he sort of gave his hostage video statement, has not really answered any questions. They've leaked, but they haven't really answered any direct questions. They, they, they haven't leaked, though. I mean, I, I want to say, when we, we talk about this, I want to be clear. Let's be, let's be fair, though. I don't think he's in over his head in the sense of being inept. I think he really is a man of credentials. But I also think that a lot of the statements we're talking about, we have to, in part, call ourselves out in the media and punditry and social media that tries to get ahead of it and tries to fill in gaps through speculation. DOJ did not make all the statements we're talking about. We haven't speculated to the point where it's it, irresponsible, but I'm saying I don't think it's all coming from DOJ to suggest that it's nuclear documents, the acceptance of the classified documents. They haven't put that out. Uh, and I think that, that that's part of your point. Right. Merrick Garland, attorney general, former federal judge, the guy who handled the Oklahoma City bombing. Right. He's not incompetent. He knows what he's doing. He's an old Washington hand. But I think what you're saying is to not have anticipated the firestorm that has come out here is his biggest problem, right? I agree. I've been critical of Merrick Garland on on many levels. Here, I give him credit because he's acting as sort of the platonic ideal of a prosecutor, the way that we were trained as young kids when we started, that you don't do politics, you operate in a vacuum. Now, that doesn't fly for the attorney general of the United States. You have to be aware that you don't operate in a vacuum as much as we, Laura and I, had the luxury of operating in a vacuum when all we had to focus on was our cases. If you're the AG, you have to see the world in a little yeah, more. Yeah, but you mean you, I mean, you wrote a great book about this. I mean, Bill Barr wasn't the most transparent about telling Not everyone everything he knows, and he's the most recent AG. You can't have it both ways. One's an FBI director and James Comey, of course, and Garland, but... You can't have both a Garland and a Comey and everyone be satisfied about transparency. Ellie Honig, (laughs) David Swerdlick, Scott Jennings, thank you so much. And coming up, look, his team accurately made a crucial call for Joe Biden in the 2020 election. 
But did the honesty and the transparency cost him his job at Fox News? The now former Fox political editor tells us about the backlash he faced and why he now accuses the network of inciting, quote, black helicopter level paranoia and hatred. The conversation is next. All right, it's time for the conversation. My guest tonight was the political editor at Fox News for 10 years. And in 2020, he made the decision to call Arizona for Joe Biden, a victory that ultimately signaled the beginning of the end for President Trump. We knew it would be a consequential call because it was one of five states that really mattered, right? Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona were the ones that we were watching. We knew it would be significant to call any one of those five, but we already knew Trump's chances were very small and getting smaller based on what we had seen. So we were able to make the call early. Uh, We were able to beat the competition. Uh, We looked around the room, everybody says yay, and on we go. And by the time we found out how much everybody was freaking out and losing their minds over this call, we were already trying to call the next state. Now, Chris Darwalt says that that decision ultimately cost him his job. And in a new book, he's accusing Fox News of inciting, quote, black helicopter level paranoia and hatred. He is the author of a new book, Broken News, Why the Media Rage Machines Divides America and How to Fight Back. And he joins me now. Chris, it's good to see you. And we did... We coordinated our outfit, so the I always energy, the vibe I is appreciate strong. the vibe right the now. Vibe Thank you strong. so much. Speaking of that, I mean, we remember your testimony in front of the January 6th committee. And um, one of the things that Fox News has had to say about it is they, they don't believe that was the reason you were let go at all, or your end of your job. What do you say to their statements? Well, I never said that's why they fired me. A lot of people said that's why they right. fired me. I don't care. Uh, they don't owe me a job. Fox News doesn't owe me a job. That's okay. I had a great time at the network. I did, I'm proud of all the work I did. I'm proud of the work that I did with other people. The news division of Fox was great when I was there. I worked with and for and around great people. So that was all fine. They fired me. It's their network. That's okay. Um, but I do know that the viewers of Fox News were incredibly angry. I didn't make that call. I was part of a decision desk team that made a call. To call Arizona. To call Arizona. But I did have to go. I got to go on air to to defend the call and explain the call. And lordy day, did people get very angry about that. I had one U.S. senator uh, call for my firing and say that uh, we were engaged in a cover-up. And I thought, are there ballots under the table that I haven't looked? Uh, What are you talking about? So I was able to observe, and part of the reason I wrote this book was that I observed in these viewers and these folks that they had been so deceived and they had been so flattered and they had been so coddled over the years that when uh, the ice cream dish was taken away and me, Mr. Green Beans, is put in front of him and I said, well, too bad, Donald Trump's not going to get reelected, they were not ready for that. They were not, they were not in a position to do that. Well, if they've been told for so long that green beans is ice cream or ice cream is supposed to be your, your daily diet, yeah. I mean, there is a lot of, you, you're very critical, very hands down at Fox News and the work that you, is happening there, although you've just said that you were proud of your work and your colleagues to a certain extent. So what do you say to those who say, well, you're, you contributed to that? So why come out now only after you've gone to suggest that there were problems? Well, this isn't really a book about Fox News. I am critical of a lot, a, a lot, okay. a lot of people in this. Now, I worked at Fox News for a long time, so obviously my experiences there inform my insights on this stuff. But here's the point of this book. As journalists, as American journalists, we have an obligation 
to our country. If we love our country, then we have an obligation to make sure that the work that we're doing, I'm not saying it can't be fun. I'm not saying it can't be exciting. I'm not saying there isn't time for ice cream sometimes. But there's ethics. But we have to do, if we love our country and we love our our fellow countrymen and countrywomen, what we have to do is make sure that the work that we're doing is in service of and not destructive to those ambitions. And when we use fear and when we use hate and when we use anger and when we use paranoia to keep ratings high and keep people attached, then we are not living up to, I mean, I think about this all the time. Mm. A million American men and women died to preserve, protect, and defend this country and our Constitution. If I don't try to do a good job and love my country and love my fellow Americans in my work, then I am letting them down. And we have obligations as journalists. I loved your last segment. I love the way that you talked about this stuff and you cooled it down. You let the partisanship, you pulled it back a little bit. That's what I'm talking about, a little bit of patriotic grace. And then as news consumers, let's, let's not kid ourselves. This isn't a supply side problem. Mm. This is a demand side, right? Well, on that point, I mean, I think it's, and you are correct in the idea of, of truth, not, not supposed to having been the novelty. I mean, the idea of the responsibility and true reporting, because we are in many respects, not only the last, but the first line of defense and the information to be actually out there. You know, one of the things you did, you spoke in front of that January 6th committee and, and speaking about what you're saying here today, that's also a part of the book more broadly. What impact do you think that committee is having in terms of a, a parallel endeavor to present what they say are the facts of what happened leading up to and on January 6th? Well, thanks to televised committee hearings, most hearings in Congress stink, right? Most of them are performative art where these members are trying to get the soundbite that they can put in a fundraising video or whatever else. I want to credit the January 6th committee. I thought it might turn into another goat rodeo or is all that performative stuff, but they have really made an effort to reach out to Republicans and convince people, and the witnesses they chose reflected that, and I thought that was good. Well, you were one of them, and the book tells the rest of the story that I think people are very interested in hearing. Chris Dalwart, thank you so much. Thanks for watching, everyone. I'll be back tomorrow night. Guess who's next? Don Lemon and Don Lemon Tonight. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.